that's working. Nice. Every time this works, I feel so proud of myself. It's working. Yep. Are we on? We're on. Theology on Mission podcast. I don't even know what season we're in, but it's happening. Yeah, I think it's season five. Where theology meets mission, the questions of engaging our culture for Christ and his kingdom. I think we ought to shorten that last line a little bit. Which part do you want to get rid of? Well, it's kind of hard to get rid of Christ and his kingdom. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, man. How was your, uh, your Sunday? Frankly, uh, I hate to admit it, but the highlight, now I'm not going to say it because I'm just going to get reamed for it, but the Blackhawks won a game. <laughs> I, I'm i asking you because it's kind of the topic of our conversation oh, yeah. today. But. Yeah, well, can we, uh, can we wait uh, till I get, uh, can we talk a little sports today? Yeah, sure. What do you want to talk about? How's those Penguins doing? Uh, they started out. Poorly, then okay. they went how's strong, those, and now they're kind of middling out. How's those Pittsburgh uh, Steelers doing? Oh, they won yesterday. So you want to know how the Hamilton Tiger Cats are doing? No, I don't know if anybody. <laughs> Best record in the CFL, and they're wow. going to the Grey Cup. Wow. Oh. Shout out to Hamilton, Ontario, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm sure they are so glad they're getting endorsed on, by Theology on Mission. All right. Well, we move on from sports to the uh, the world of theology on mission. And uh, Mr. Moore, I I, I, uh, I had a chance to read a uh, well a very interesting tweet from our friend John Stark, who's pastor at Apostles Church Uptown. I highly doubt it that John's listening right now, but John, if you are, shout out to you and Apostles Church Uptown, New York City. Um. But here's what he says. Well, first of all, do you know who John Stark is? I didn't know who he was until... Uh, you we, read the notes. Until I was looking at the John, notes. John, sorry about sorry, that. Sorry, John. That hurts. John's a prominent member of uh, the Gospel Coalition. He writes there quite a bit. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest. I don't read TGC too often. Oh, well. Every once in a while. I, I, like, their you, book, I like their book reviews. Aren't you a little bit of a... Um, a non-reformed uh, reformed pastor? Sectarian? You don't engage people who are just not in line with the way you oh, think. Oh, I, I, I engage that all the time. Well, John Stark and I, by the way, went back and forth between uh, Gospel Coalition and Missio Alliance. Uh, well, I think it was called Anabaptist Neo-Reformed Dialogue hmm. and what we can learn from each other. And uh, that's just a small little snippet of of the way John Stark and I uh, uh, engage. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, the Gospel Coalition and I, um, you know, haven't engaged a whole lot. So I appreciate yeah. Mr. John Stark for his engagement with uh, the Anabaptist mm-hmm. Evangelical uh, at the end of the uh, sitting on the wrong side of town, if I can put it I that gotcha. way. I got you. Was this a podcast or a we- no, webinar? This, uh, the the uh, Anabaptist Reform Dialogue? Yeah. Uh, that was just between on actual th- Gospel Coalition website and the Missio Alliance website. Okay, yeah, we'll throw the link in there. Yeah, well, anyways, uh, John said this over the weekend. He said, 
make fun of millennials attaching themselves to liturgical communities all you want, but they've watched a boomer evangelicalism with fuzzy theological boundaries and no attached history implode. They've watched their parents grow older. Thanks for not saying old. They've watched their parents grow older with no deep friendships, and it's not attractive. Wow. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about the move from the evangelical megachurch to the mm-hmm. liturgical church. Yes. And it does seem that there's a lot of millennials who have made that move. Oh, yeah. I, I can tell you 15, 20. I mean... Just out of your own little off orbit? The to- off the top of my mind, people who grew up in the the haunts of American megachurch evangelicalism and now are Anglican, Episcopalian. Yeah, and while we're at it, my friend Aaron Nequist, who wrote the, the, the book Eternal Current, is one of those uh, mm-hmm. people who worked at the uh, famous Willow Creek Church for years. Yeah whose uh, wife is Shauna, who's also the daughter of the former pastor of Willow Creek. And now he, and he started the practice. The practice, right. Which was uh, basically a a Book of Common Prayer liturgical church service within the walls of Willow Creek. Mm -hmm. And he kind of represents, I think, a whole movement of people who have been leaving the megachurch for its vapidity. Can I use that word? Vapidity. Vapidity. It's kind of... A superficiality, and this is, I think, what John Stark is getting at. Yeah. Um, it's a lack of historical, substantive, foundational uh, breadth to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this. This is also describing your journey a little bit. Well, you know, uh, when we started Life on the Vine, uh, I was, uh, this was in 2001. Man, did I get a lot of uh, pushback mm-hmm. on the liturgical aspects that we are trying to uh, shape our lives around because, largely because, the megachurch had had such an, um, uh, an I want to say, negative impact right. on my life. Right. I can't say that totally because the megachurch did have some po- sure. positive impacts on my life. But uh, when it came to shaping my life to uh, live more fully into the presence of God and to shape my life in terms of various areas of my life, whether it becomes money, marriage, uh, the way I treat friends, the way I make the table and my friendship central to my life, Mm -hmm. I had to get out of the hyper-busy consumerist experientialism of the megachurch. Do you have a moment? Because I, I found for a lot of people when I asked them this question, do you have a moment or an image or memory of like of when that frame broke for you? And you're like, this is no longer working. This is no longer tenable. I was part of a church called Park Community Church. Park Community's changed quite a bit from the 90s. So this is no way an indictment of it today, but Park Community Church in Chicago was a Willow Creek attempt right. to be Willow Creek Church where I just saw the way people were dating, mating, getting mm. married, their whole lives was being formed by the rather sick culture of single uh, Chicagoland, 1990s. Think of, think of the show Friends and all those various, or, or How I Met Your Mother. And that was the culture of Chicago in the 1990s, probably. I got married in 1999, so I don't really know what the single culture was after that. But, but you can see that, mm-hmm. that the reveal of how 
unformative that kind of Christianity was in the lives of people was most often visited by how many people stayed single or the way they carried on in their single lives towards yeah. men and women, towards people of the opposite sex. So anyways, I just said, this is this is not work. Yeah, to, to the point of our, well, our topic, we're going to be talking about liturgy and worship. The One of the breaking points for me, I was working at a mega church out here in the western suburbs and invited a non a non Christian friend at the time, non a believer, uh, to join our worship service and when I asked him what he thought of it afterwards, he said, It felt like I was at a movie theater and a really great like rock concert. And that was a moment for me that I still have burned it in my memory. Um where I just walked away and I thought, Well then what what are we doing if this just feels like a uh, a movie and a rock concert. Yeah, somewhere along the line, we don't have to go th- uh, talk on and on about the vac- vacuitousness. I just used another big word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the vacuity or the vapidity. Uh, what is that? I better make sure I'm vapid using is, I think vapid is, vacuitous is empty. Yeah. Um, vapid. vapid, I think, is like, is rabid. Okay. Forget the word vapid. I, wa- I was aiming for vacuity. Yeah. Uh, and the way it was empty and in, in unable to form. But we don't have to go on and on about that. Uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. So um, now, what are, now where are we? Well, I, I think, where are we right I think where we're going is we're going to jump into number one here. We're going, yeah. we're talking, we were just talking about the emptiness of kind of the megachurch um, worship that a lot of us were formed in. Yeah, and so we're basically saying, why did this happen, uh, this, this move of millennials from the mega church to uh, the liturgical church, and and I want to say, well, it was from experiential consumerism, empty and individualistic, uh, to uh, you know tapping into a long historically shaped practice where there's a spiritual formation, where there's grounded substantive uh, doctrine and understanding and profound formation of personal experience. I think that's what, what was dr- the big driver. And, and you, you, you and I both remember Bob Weber mm-hmm. and his ancient future faith series oh, yeah. and how a lot of us were reading that at the turn of, of the century and how important that was in f- forming us towards an appreciation for liturgical church. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Big influence. So now I want to move, though, into uh, three problems of liturgical church. Oh, okay. Three, three th- okay, so the pendulum kind of swings hmm. from, oh, we want to get as far away from the mega church uh, in- entertainment, uh, consumeristic church experience. We want to go as far away from that as possible to a liturgical presence uh, grounded in the history and in the doctrine of the ancient church, and it goes to the extreme. Hmm. And I want to say it's not going to work. I always at Life in the Vine, and I'm pressing more and more into our own church here, which is a church plan of Life in the Vine, that we need to make the liturgy accessible. Okay. Um, if we don't make make it accessible, if we just become liturgical purists. If all we do is recite prayers that are 500 years old and older, then all we will get is a bunch of educated, Mm -hmm. overeducated, excessively theologically educated people to to become a cocoon Mm -hmm. of really great liturgical artistry, but it won't be impacting the world. Do you see this problem anywhere? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it becomes... Inherently exclusive and inaccessible to people. 
And and it is oftentimes aligning with a certain level of education and a certain race culture and ethnicity. Did you call it race culture? Race, sorry, comma, culture, comma, ethnicity. Okay, I I need to hear more on that from you. Um, So this is just my experience and my observations, but typically churches I see, and I know this is not true across the board, but... What I've mostly seen has been the churches that are hyper liturgical. Necessary caveat, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, churches that are uh, really fixated on liturgy and being pure, he's not, purist. He's not, in their he's not litur- throwing everybody under the bus no. right now. And being purist in their liturgy, um, they have a hard time um, ministering and opening up space for those who are poor, who are sick, who are oftentimes marginalized. Right, uh, and and so, uh, you know, if we are engaged in the world for Christ and, and bringing mission and witness to the world, we're going to have people, uh, and I don't think they should necessarily go directly into Sunday morning church, if that's what we want to call right. it, but we got to make things accessible for those who, you, you remember how the Roman Catholic Church uh, used to be, the, the Mass used to be in Latin, this mm-hmm. was like in the yep. 60s? Yeah. I mean, you don't remember yeah. that, and yeah. frankly, I don't either. But the point is that um, we need to translate. We need to make it accessible. We need, so so I got a few. You know, some of my suggestions are: let's just make uh, prayers and um, um, uh, any of the the liturgical uh, functions, like uh, saying the creed, for instance, or mm-hmm. saying the Lord's prayer, or saying a confession. Let's let's translate. Let's not lose the power of those prayers, but at the same point, let's use language that most people can access. The these, the thous, etc. Blah blah blah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another thing might be, and and we did this at Life in the Vine. We tried to explain certain moves. We didn't explain the whole service all the time, but there were sure. times when we got to explain what we're doing at the table, what the uh, epiclesis is mm-hmm. means, why we have silence, why what what is the passing of the peace and the significance. Uh, just a little, not a lot. Uh, you have to get good at this. This takes probably more skill than actual liturgy. Yeah. But explaining the liturgy and have entry points for people to understand the profundity of what we do. Uh, yes, it's hundreds of years old, if not more than that. But yet we need to uh, help people understand and get get inside easier than it has been in the past. Yeah. And I, and I think if you're always explaining parts of the liturgy, it's also reminding your church that it, um, there are entry points for people to come in from the outside. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, okay, so one of the things we did uh, is we used art and we used filmography to kind of make, uh, help people understand and enter into saying the creed or saying the Lord's Prayer or saying an ancient prayer or saying a confession and helping them get the gravitas and invite them into the full experience as opposed to it being just a mere mental exercise. Because you got to remember, liturgy was formed before, um, you know, a, a lot of these things were printable and written. Yeah. And uh, the liturgy was in these great uh, cathedrals. Uh, nothing against great cathedrals, but the art and everything was there to help. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we did this thing called, it's now called the lit, lit, litany. 
I I first called it, believe it or not, I called at Life on the Vine. I called it the liturgma. Liturgma. Can you believe? Can you believe even how bad that sounds? I, I, can, I was I can trying. I was trying to combine film, drama, and liturgy into one word. And it didn't <laughs> okay, go with okay. it very well. It's a, quite the portmanteau there. And, and I had a few people like nix me on that after like <laughs> one year. We got to change the name of this. People are getting the wrong idea. <laughs> so we need to make it accessible. That's my first point. Please, can we work on making the liturgy accessible? Entry points, not necessarily explain everything, but make avenues for people to yes. understand what we're doing. Inviting them in okay the other thing that uh i i fear uh, i got like three or four things i'm points i'm trying to make about liturgy yeah let's not lose how central the bible has to be in our lives i fear we go off on the lectionary too easily and we lose the fact that people in the the modern period are the period that we live in i didn't say postmodern. i said we're still all basically readers even if we read off of screens mm-hmm. and um we lose we got to find ways for people to read the bible and study the bible too often we think liturgy and the lectionary is enough do you agree yeah. When you say lectionary, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding you. I, I'm understanding the lectionary as being the text that you're reading for that Sunday. Right. We 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 still read four texts, okay. but um, we preach in such a way. You know, it, typically liturgy wants to shrink the sermon down to 20 minutes, which I actually agree with. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is, we sometimes lose the ability to teach people how to read the Bible and make the Bible a significant part of their lives. I see what you're saying. So. This assumption that we're reading four texts every Sunday, people people will get through scripture in was it three years? Yeah, you get you get, you don't the get through all of it, but yeah. there is a there is a uh, cycle there. But that still has to be supplemented by with encouraging people to be, if we can swing the pendulum back a little more, to be reading the Bible in their homes with their family, with their friends to be submitting and, uh, uh, to the story of God in, in their daily lives. And on their own, and then having places to study the Bible, little yeah. Bible studies here and there uh, in different places. We, we, uh, I, we, we're doing this again at Peace of Christ, but we always used to study books, like we'd study the book of Revelation. We'd help people read through the book of Revelation, but we'd do it within the uh, lectionary, within the... the uh, church year mm-hmm. there would be readings because because it would fit well with when advent epiphany uh lent easter post eastern pentecost you could you could fit them in so that they would all make sense but we'd still be reading a book study yeah. plus we'd have those readings printed out so that everybody would be able to read them come sunday morning mm-hmm. or and read them with their family and read them on their own so that over the course of three to four years we'd cover a significant number of books in the Bible so people would become immersed in Scripture and the story of God in and through Israel and, and, and Jesus Christ and where he's taking us. So uh, it was really a double, triple whammy. We not only get the order of the world according to the church year, we get it according to the lectionary, and then we study it book by book by book. That's good. Does that? Are you following me on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd have sermon series built on books fitted within uh, the church calendar year. And during ordinary time, you have a little more creativity. Within ordinary time, we had the freedom to you know, focus on issues or yeah. problems that, were, that were, the church was engaged in, and we'd focus scripture and teaching on that. Yeah, no, this is a good recommendation since we are just a few weeks away from Advent coming up. Yeah, and so again, 
uh, let's make uh, liturgy accessible and uh, let's let's still allow liturgy. It does good shaping work, but can we still f- shape people's lives around the Bible? The other, another, th- uh, so I think I'm on, on number three now. Um, culturally engaged. Can we remain culturally engaged? I feel sometimes liturgical churches are too liturgically pure. I'll give you an example that kind of, kind of eats at me at times. And Aaron, if you're listening, I love you, but I'm going to throw you under the bus. <laughs> um, you know, Christmas time. Okay. Uh, Advent. Mm-hmm. Um, Advent, as, as as the historical season, is more a time of waiting and don't celebrate. Don't yeah. celebrate until the 12 days of Christmas. Oh, right. Yes. But, but do we understand that yeah. Christmas is a major uh, time of celebration of family and the presence of Christ in the Incarnation? And uh, at, at our church, we do oh, the Epiphany feast. I, I know where feast. this is going. Sorry. We don't do the Christmas gala. I always did the I always did the big party, uh, second week of Advent to inaugurate a celebration of the presence of Christ coming. Aaron says no, no celebration Too until early. Epiphany. Yeah, but Epiphany is anticlimactic because Epiphany ends up being how many. Is it the week or no? It's multiple weeks after. It's January. Starts January sixth or seventh, depending yeah, okay, on, so it's, yeah, on the calendar. Weeks. And so, um, all I'm trying to say is, uh, you know, Christmas itself was kind of like a cultural accommodation to right. uh, uh, I forget what exact holiday it was at the time. I mean, people didn't yeah. even celebrate Christmas in the medieval period. It was basically a Euro development. But <clears throat> let's try to let's try to uh, make opportunities to center people's. A celebration of family, celebration of other things at Christmas time. You know, uh, Christmas parties at companies. We're going to celebrate the year. Let's try to align that and bring it under the presence and reality mm-hmm. of Jesus coming mm-hmm. and redeeming the world. Instead of saying no, we can't celebrate until Epiphany Feast. Uh, that's yeah. how I feel about it. Um, but there's other times when we, when liturgy just separates us from everything culture and creates a cocoon and i want us to be careful of that Hmm. uh i think that we ought to um engage cultural issues with the church calendar and the way of life Hmm. when when uh, ever possible i mean we go on about easter and the importance of easter importance of good friday how it's been lost um but how then can we celebrate new life uh post easter and i think for the most part um we we failed to to carry that out. I'm not talking about my church now. Yeah. I'm talking about just generally speaking. So you're okay with singing "Joy to the World" maybe uh, in the second week of Advent? Absolutely, I am. It's a great song. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more thing, and and then uh, I want to hear if you got any final words. Yeah. But I feel like sometimes liturgy can get slow and boring. Mm. And I feel like the mega church was always on pace. You know, you got to keep. Yeah. It was yeah. always timed out. Per- oh, yeah. What's that software? That software that oh, like, keeps uh, you on time. I know what you're talking about, and I hate Pl- it. I don't know. Anyhow, but it's so well produced. Yes. yes. I was at a mega church speaking recently, and uh, between the first and the second services, they said, "Hey, we got to have a better transition on that the next time." What are you talking about? Well, instead of sitting there, we want you to do this and this. Oh, and you got 15 seconds to do it. I can do it in 10. Thank you very much. I'm a hockey player. But anyways, <laughs> the the point is, uh, we we kind of went the opposite direction, right. and now we're just right. going to be present and methodical and 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 boring 
mm-hmm. and or sometimes morose. Morose. That's a good way to describe it. And and and, and I worry about that because um, I think what liturgy at its best has a pace to it. Hmm. So instead of being produced, let's keep a pace that moves us towards the climax of the table and this great celebration uh, of the fact that Christ has come to be present with us and we now celebrate his redemption, his renewal, his salvation, the giving of himself to us and the return and then the praise and thanksgiving. So we actually do music at the end. Yes, that's how, my last church plan, that's how we do it too. And so... um, and 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 we, and we need good music. We need the musicians to be good musicians. I, I, I'm not one to say mm-hmm. we should democratize the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let the people and and sometimes, by the way, the music. If you got a small church plant, don't worry about it. Yeah. Just get somebody up there to lead us in a praise and thanksgiving mm-hmm. and a, and a benediction. So, um, anyways, to sum up, uh, a I love the move from mega church uh, produced consumeristic worship to liturgy but i want us to a be a keep it or make it or allow it to be accessible i want the bible to still be central i want it to be culturally engaged and i want there to be pace and leadership in the liturgy i think the liturgy is ordered to draw us into the presence of christ and to celebrate all he's given to us and send us out into his mission Mm -hmm. how do you feel about those four things feels great it's good I think you're, um, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't sure where you're going with this podcast. I looked at the notes, but I couldn't quite understand what you, what you were wanting to lead us in. Um, Not the first time. No. But I have had a concern recently where I see a movement of people going to more liturgical churches. And my only concern is that uh, robes are becoming the new screens. You know, th- th- this is like a new commodified attraction. I'm not, and I'm not saying that's what's happening, but that, you're not that's saying that's what's happening at our church, the mm. church I go to. No, no, I, I've only visited your church one time ever, but 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 my concern is that hey, is this just becoming something that's now commodified that people are really attracted to? Not bad to be attracted to something, but I want there to be some discernment and thoughtfulness behind the way that we're shaping our liturgy. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, Ditto on that. Uh, I don't know about the robes, though. Well, I, yeah, you guys don't use robes. No, we don't use so robes. Well, I, except at baptism, we use robes. Yeah. And I do love the robes at baptism. M- maybe I'm saying the sacraments are the new screens. I don't want that to happen. No, there, there, there is some uh, potential for uh, liturgy to become the new cool, mm-hmm. the new hip and yeah. cool. Not with you doing the, the not with no. you presiding. No, well, I'm not hip or cool. Especially with some of those clothes you wear. I know, uh, but look from, at the, look at this the shirt, Goodwill. though. This shirt's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the socks. These socks, come on. And, I, and the I, shoelaces? i got to get my sunglasses out. Anyways, <laughs> uh, but the point is, uh, I do like the liturgical move. Yeah, me too. I'm, uh, I'm there. I just say, we have to actually be skilled liturgists to make this accessible. Yes. Uh, as if we're doing it all over again in a foreign culture mm-hmm. that's never heard the word epiclesis before. Yes. Which means? Uh, prayer of invocation. There you go. We, we just call it the invocation at my church. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, what do you call a drum roll? Or not drum roll. Uh, I, yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that uh, discussion on liturgy, the importance of liturgy, but also how we must shape liturgies to be accessible 
and uh, do the work of shaping people into his kingdom and his presence has been helpful to you today. Um, do you have anything to add to, to uh, how, what time? How long have we been going? I think we're good. I think we have enough time for me to ask you the same question I asked you at our last podcast, which is, what's a book recommendation you would give to people to read? Um, uh, can you go first? Robert Weber. Robert Weber, uh, Ancient Future Faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was or a classic. Evangelism. That's from almost uh, 15, 20 years Evangelicals ago. Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. Wasn't that, that was his a book? F- famous one where Bob Weber, when he was teaching at Wheaton, wrote, and a lot of students at that time were going mm-hmm. the Can- Canterbury Trail. Um, I'm reading, we're going to have Gerald Sitzer on this uh, podcast. Yeah, next week. And I'm reading um, his book, uh, Radiant Third. Faith. Yep. About a third way. Mm-hmm. Folks, if you get that book, uh, read it before our next podcast because yeah. we're going to have him on. And uh, I've been impressed by this idea of a third way. But by the way, the third way is not a middle way. Right. That's a big distinction. Big distinction. And we'll be going through that at the next podcast. All right. It's time to end Theology on Mission podcast. If you have time, if you have in your leisure mm-hmm. uh, an, uh, an urge to give us a review on Apple's iTunes, please do spread the word about Theology on Mission podcast. Tell them how handsome Mike Moore is and how yes. uh, grumpy a curmudgeon Fitch is. And uh, we'll try to send you a free gift of some sort. <laughs> yeah, a free gift <laughs> for doing that. But until then, it's over and out on another Theology on Mission podcast. It's Dave Fitch here with Mike Moore. Until next time.